We like the notion of ruling, but we hate the thought of suffering. Nobody signs up for that course, right? We want the glory of the victory, but we don't want the suffering of the war that goes into winning that victory. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you turn to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8. When Luciano Pavarotti, the famous tenor, was a boy, his father, a baker, encouraged him to study singing. He studied singing with a private tutor and also graduated from teacher's college. He asked his father, shall I be a teacher or a singer? His father said, Luciano, if you try and sit on two chairs, you will fall between them. For life, you must choose one chair. I chose one. It took seven years of study and frustration before I made my first professional appearance. It took another seven years to reach the Metropolitan Opera. And now I think whether it's laying bricks, writing books, whatever we choose, we should give ourselves fully to it. Commitment, that's the key. Choose one chair. Today we're going to learn that following Jesus requires complete commitment to Him alone. And we're going to pick up the narrative in Mark 8, beginning at verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questions his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Here's the principle. The only way to be saved from the penalty of sin is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and to trust in his payment for our sin. The only way to be saved from the penalty of sin is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and trust in his payment for our sin. Let me give you a little historical context. At this point in history, Jesus has completed about two and a half years of his three-year ministry. He's got about six months before his date with the cross in southern Israel, Judea, in Jerusalem to pay for the sins of the world. That's going to happen in Passover, which happens in March, April of the next year. So it's probably September, October, about the time Jesus is having this conversation with the disciples. In the last 18 months, he's literally been in Galilee. He's healed thousands and thousands of people. He's preached in dozens of villages. He's cast out demons out of dozens of people. He's raised the dead even. So he's done multiple miracles that have authenticated his claim that he, in fact, is Messiah. He, in fact, is God in the flesh. So now he leaves the village of Bethsaida on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and he goes 25 miles straight north to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is on the very border of the land of Israel. Rob is going to show you a, a map of this particular region. 
At this period in time, Caesarea Philippi is a city uh, built by Philip the Tetrarch. Philip the Tetrarch is one of the many sons of Herod the Great. And Tetrarch means ruler over a fourth part. It's kind of a, a title, uh, a king, but it literally he was a very, very small king. That, the green section here was the area of uh, Palestine that Philip the Tetrarch ruled over. Herod died in uh, 4 BC and his kingdom was divided into four pieces. And you can see three of them here. And Philip received the area north and east uh, of Galilee, and that's the green area. So he builds this city, Caesarea Philippi, right almost on the very border of northeastern Israel. And he built it to honor the Roman Empire, uh, Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus. So that's why it called Caesarea in honor of Caesar Augustus. He named it Caesarea Philippi, obviously, after himself as well. And also, there was also another Caesarea on the west coast, a port city of Caesarea already in existence that Herod the Great had built and also named Caesarea in honor of the emperor. Obviously, if you wanted to maintain your post as king, you needed to suck up to the emperor and naming cities after them or children after them was one way to stay in power. So this kinglet, if you will, is Tetrarch, one of the sons of Herod the Great builds this city and he builds a marble temple there and dedicates it to Augustus. And uh, this city um, is built way on the northern end. Rob's going to show you a map of just the northern part. You're going to notice from the Sea of Galilee almost straight north is about 25 miles. And Caesarea is built right on the northern end of that area. It was originally where the tribe of Dan was. So when, they, when Joshua came into the land and they conquered uh, the Canaanites, the tribe of Dan inherited this particular portion of the region of Israel. It's one of the loveliest spots in Israel. There's a lot of rainfall there. Uh, it's really, really a remarkable place. But it's also a place that has been dominated by paganism for generations and generations. The tribe of Dan fell deeply into idolatry due to their pagan neighbors. It's also called Panias, as well as Caesarea Philippi. And of course, that's after the Greek mythology, the god of Pan, the half-man, half-goat, who played the flute. You've probably seen that. So that lot, a lot, a lot of idolatry up here. Caesarea was a Philippi was a Roman Gentile city, and they practiced emperor worship. So they worshiped the Caesar as God. And all these villages and the city of Caesarea Philippi lie at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the tallest uh, geographical point in Israel and it's about 9,200 feet tall. There is actually a ski resort called Mount Hermon Ski Resort and you can actually ski there. And all the headwaters of the Jordan begin right at Caesarea Philippi. There's underground springs and meltwater from Mount Hermon that come down. So Jesus takes his disciples 25 miles north. And this is really on the edge of Israel, right? And it's very remote. And he takes them there because he's going to reveal some specific information about his future and their future. And before he does that, he wants to find out what their level of understanding about him is. So he asks them a couple of questions. The first question is, who do people say that I am? What does the public in general believe about me? You've been with it two and a half years now. You've seen all these miracles. What is your take on what the public believes about me? And they say, well, the public believes you're a prophet, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, but you are just a human being, obviously, some other prophet. The crowd, the public, does not believe that you are Messiah. 
They do not believe that you are God in the flesh. And the reason they don't is because the Old Testament taught very clearly that Messiah was going to come as a conquering king, a political ruler, a military commander, someone who destroyed all of Israel's enemies, brought divine blessing on Israel. When you read the Old Testament, and much of the Old Testament describes the Messiah in terms of a king. Messiah is supposed to be a king, makes Israel the chief among the nations, brings divine blessing. Israel is going to rule the world, and the king, Messiah, is going to sit on the throne of Jerusalem and rule the world. And this Messiah is going to make the desert bloom, and the land is going to experience divine blessing. And every single one of those prophecies will come true at the second coming of the Messiah. Not the first coming of the Messiah. So the Israelites, the nation, thought that Messiah, when he came, he was going to be a king, and he was going to act like a king. Well, the problem was Jesus didn't act like a king. Jesus didn't pursue political power. Jesus didn't raise an army. Jesus didn't take on Rome and overthrow it. He didn't free Israel. So they looked at what much of the Old Testament said about what Messiah was going to look like, and they looked at Jesus' behavior, and they said, he ain't the guy, right? What they failed to do is read passages about Messiah, about his first coming that said he's going to be a suffering servant. He's going to suffer and die for the sins of the people. They didn't read Isaiah 53 and understand that. And the truth told, the Old Testament is very, very, it's not clear that there's going to be two comings. So they assumed he was only going to come once. But they didn't read carefully the all of the New Testament or the Old Testament. And secondarily, because Jesus didn't fit their expectation, they rejected him even though they had seen hundreds of miracles. I mean, one of the things I don't think we understand is Jesus has been doing miracles virtually every day for 18 months. There are thousands of people that were healed. There's probably not much disease left in northern Israel. I mean, it says he's healing and healing. Round the clock. Can't even have time for a meal. So we don't have any understanding. There would be no hospitals operating in northern Israel. They're all healed. They have got evidence, evidence, and more evidence that this Jesus is obviously supernatural because he's doing hundreds of miracles over a two-year period. Now Jesus brings a little closer to home. He says, okay, who do you say that I am? This is life's most important question. Because what you believe about Jesus Christ will determine your eternal destiny. If Jesus is just another man, even a really good man, you still have a problem because really good men can't save you from their sins because they're still sinful creatures. They're just another sinner. Only if Jesus is both fully God and fully man can he be the perfect sacrifice for sin and be the human representative who dies in our place for the sins of the world. So Jesus is asking, what is your understanding of who I am based on the fact that you've been with me for two and a half years? It's a long time. Peter, of course, who's the spokesman for the 12 at this point in time, he says, you are the Christ. Now, Christ in Greek is Christos. In, in Hebrew, it's Messiah. Messiah, Christos, means the same thing. It means the anointed one or the chosen one. Christ, by the way, is not his name. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. 
The Christ title defines Jesus' work, what he does. Jesus is his name. It means salvation, Yeshua. Christos, or Messiah, is the promised one, the anointed one, the chosen one, and it has to do with his work. Jesus was chosen by God the Father to come to earth to reconcile our broken relationship with God the Father by paying the penalty for human sin on the cross. That's what he did. That's his work. Matthew records that Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That's Bar-Jonah. His dad's name was Jonah, so son of Jonah. You recognized I'm Messiah. By the way, don't get a big head about it. You didn't figure that out. God revealed it to you. That's very instructive. Because many, many times we share our faith with people and we go, how come they can't see it? How come they don't get it? It is so obvious that Jesus is the Christ. Look at the data. It's everywhere. You and I didn't come to Christ because we were brilliant. We didn't come to Christ because we had insight. We were rebels. We still struggle with rebellion, even though we belong to Him. We only came to Christ because the Holy Spirit opened our eyes so that we could see. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. So when you share Christ with people, Pray that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes to recognize that Jesus is Lord because we can't persuade anybody to believe. If we can talk them into it, as Pastor said, someone else can talk them out of it. Only God himself can open their eyes so that they will see that Jesus is the Christ. But we can ask them the same question Jesus asked. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Good question. Now the disciples, they've seen enough miracles. They're convinced they know who Jesus is, his person. What they're struggling with is what Jesus does, his plan. They're having a real problem with his plan. Because just like the crowds, the disciples think that Messiah is going to be a ruling king. I mean, they think he's going to take over, run Rome out of Israel, and sit on the throne of Israel, and they're going to reign with him. Pretty neat deal, huh? Twelve disciples, this is the new king. We're going to have an insurrection. This king can feed everybody, heal the sick, raise the dead, and we're going to rule the world with him. That's a pretty good expectation. Now Jesus says, um, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be killed. And they can't believe. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Here's the principle. Arguing with God is agreeing with Satan. Our job is not telling Jesus our plans, but adjusting our lives to his plans. Arguing with God is agreeing with Satan. Our job is not telling Jesus our plans, but adjusting our lives to his plans. 
So they've been with him for two and a half years, and he is now telling them, I'm going to die for the sins of the world, and this is the first time that they've heard this. And they are blown away. Their entire concept of what the Messiah is, what the Messiah is supposed to do, and their role in this kingdom is shattered. The disciples thought they were going to rule with them, and now they think they're probably going to die with them. And it happens like that. No wonder Peter tried to talk Jesus out of it, right? You and I would too. We, this is us. We are Peter, right? We like the notion of ruling, but we hate the thought of suffering. Nobody signs up for that course, right? We want the glory of the victory, but we don't want the suffering of the war that goes into winning that victory. We all want the gold medal of participation, a participation medal, without the struggle of the training and the discipline, right? And deep down, you know, we know this isn't true. We, we know that. Athletes train for years and years and years for even the chance to compete at Olympic level of competition. Michael Phelps' training regimen was six hours a day, six days a week, no exceptions for years and years and years and years and years and years. That's reality. That's not uncommon. 4 a.m. out of bed in the pool. Three hours. No exceptions. That's table stakes. That doesn't mean you're going to win. That just, that just gets you into the game so you're able to compete. If you aspire to compete at the Olympic level, you don't just have to love your sport, you have to live it. You organize your entire life around it. Write this down. When you follow Jesus Christ, you organize your entire life around him. When you follow Jesus Christ, you organize your entire life around him. That's the whole point of this passage. Now, Peter's plan and our plan is to avoid suffering, of course. But God's plan is to transform suffering into glory. See, Satan deceives people into thinking that you can have the glory and you can bypass the suffering. Just go straight for the glory, right? In God's economy, however, the cross always precedes the crown. The cross always precedes the crown. In Hebrews 12, too, we have a little summary talking about Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the cross. And you go, why would he put up with the cross? It says, for the joy set before him. What was the joy? Heaven. The joy was, I'm obeying my heavenly Father. I'm fulfilling the work my heavenly Father gave me to do which was to die. The cross was not an accident. The cross was an achievement established from eternity past. You and I know that this life entails suffering. I know that's not news to any of you. You'd like to have it differently. We'd like to have cotton candy 24 by 7, but it doesn't work that way. This life involves suffering, but your crown is coming, right? But it's not here. It's not on planet Earth. We spend an enormous amount of time trying to get our crown on planet Earth. The crown is in heaven. It's not here. So the disciples are faced with a very painful choice. <clears throat> Either change your minds about what the Messiah's plan is, 
or try and persuade Messiah to change his plan. You know what Peter does. You know what you and I try and do. Oh God, how about if you just modify your plan and kind of do it my way? I've got a couple of, I, I could give you some advice about how this would work really well. Can we have a conversation about that, Lord? You know? He tries to talk Jesus out of suffering and dying. He says, Lord, this is never going to happen to you because if you got to die, maybe I got to die too. I don't want to hear that. And Jesus absolutely cleans Peter clock. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like Satan. You're behaving like Satan. Why? Well, do you think Satan had tried to talk Jesus into bypassing the cross? Of course. Remember in the desert? He opened his ministry, 40 days in the wilderness, no food. Satan came to him and said, turn stones into bread. And the last one was, if you fall down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and you can rule and reign and not have to die first. You don't have to go to the cross. Those human beings aren't worth dying for. You can rule and reign and bypass the suffering. Well, if you haven't eaten for 40 days, that might sound pretty good, right? God, Jesus, absolutely resisted Satan. He said, get thee behind me, Satan, back then. Thus says the word of the Lord. Jesus tells Peter, it's God's plan for him to suffer and to die for the sins of the world. Trying to talk Jesus out of disobeying his father is declaring war on God. Who tried that? <clears throat> Satan obviously tried that when he led the revolt in heaven. And he got thrown out of heaven, and there's been warfare on earth and in heaven ever since then. So he rebukes Peter very strongly. Peter goes from the highest commendation, blessed are you, Peter, to the highest condemnation, get the behind me, Satan, in one sentence. Jesus rebukes Peter, and then he extends an invitation to follow him. And many churches extend invitations each week. You know, we're, we, we are blessed to be at a church where we extend invitations <coughs> to have people who want to make a decision for Christ to, to do something about it. Jesus' invitation doesn't sound like your average church invitation, right? Jesus doesn't invite us to a self-centered discipleship, but a self-denying discipleship. Jesus' invitation is not health, wealth, peace, prosperity, you know, health and healing. It's a call to complete commitment to follow Jesus wherever he leads. This invitation that Jesus issues is so central that it's in all four Gospels. Let's read it. Verse 34. And he summoned the crowd. Now, he's been talking to the disciples, so he summons the crowd that's around with the disciples, and he says to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me 
Who, for, the, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here's the principle. Choosing to follow Jesus will cost you everything this world worships. Or values. You can put worships or values, same thing. Choosing to follow Jesus will cost you everything this world worships and gain you everything heaven worships or heaven values. Choosing to follow Jesus will cost you everything this world worships and gain you everything heaven worships. I want you to know some things. First of all, following Jesus is a choice. He says, if. It's a choice. Furthermore, no one is compelled or excluded. He says, if anyone wishes to follow me. So anyone can follow Jesus. No one's compelled. No one's excluded. However, if you choose to follow Jesus, there are terms and conditions that are non-negotiable. You don't get to follow Jesus on your terms. You follow Jesus on his terms. So Jesus is essentially saying, look, there are costs to following me and there are benefits to following me. Let's do the math. What's the cost? What's the benefit? You know, when you buy something, you know, how many of you spent some money this week? Yeah, right, everybody spends money. Every time you spend money, there's a cost-benefit analysis running in your head. I'm going to spend, I'm going to give X dollars in order to get X something, right? And you're willing to trade the money for whatever you get because you value what you get more than the money, right? Say yes. This is just buying and selling, right? This is cost-benefit. Same thing here. Jesus says, well, if anyone wishes to what? Come after me. These words are pretty dramatic because they mean a lot more than just duty. I'm following after Jesus. I'm plodding after Jesus because I gotta. This is actually a very romantic term. When he says come after me, and it means passionately pursuing someone you love. I never knew that. Come after me is a passionate pursuit. It's a romantic term. You know, when you're in love, do you pursue the one you love? Please say yes. <laughs> Some of you are going, yeah, I, that'd be kind of nice, you know? I mean, right? Do you know? Of course you do. When you're in love, you always pursue the one you love. You obsess about them. You want to be with them you, you, all the time. You call, you text, you FaceTime, right? It's not just your spouse. It could be your grandchildren. Right? It could be your children. It could be a friend. When you love someone, you want to be with them. You pursue them. I mean, you don't have to listen to too many musical lyrics about love. And Whitney Houston says, I will sometimes love you, right? Says, I will always love you. The Beatles sang way back in the day, for those of you that are as old as me, she loves you. Chorus line, the musical chorus line, what I did for love. You ought to tape that up someplace because we do all sorts of interesting things for love. We really do. I bet I could ask you <clears throat> about the sacrifices you've made because you loved someone. And you could list them. What you've done, the sacrifices for your spouse, the sacrifices for your children, some of you are still sacrificing for your children. Yes? Your grandchildren. Your friends. 
and especially the sacrifices you've made for your pets. Because your pets unconditionally love you. They never argue with you, right? If your children loved you as unconditionally as your pets love you, maybe we'd all be in heaven, right? The truth of it is we will do almost anything for those we love. And Jesus gives an illustration of this, Matthew 13, 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy went and sold everything he had and bought the field. Let me just give you the word picture here. <clears throat> in that era, people often buried treasure in the ground for safekeeping, especially when they left town for an extended period of time. They didn't have burglar alarms and all that other stuff. So when they left town, they buried the treasure in the ground someplace on the farm, especially when they went away to war, because they knew they might come back. So Jesus describes the scene where the owner of the field has probably been killed in battle. There's a hired hand plowing the field, discovers the treasure, plows it up, right? And it's probably a box with precious gems in it, concentrated wealth. He reburies the treasure, goes and sells everything he owns in order to buy the field to get the treasure. Here's the point. Jesus is that priceless treasure. Jesus, knowing Jesus is more valuable than anything you possess in this life. A relationship with Jesus, however, is not partial. It's an all-in. It's a total commitment kind of relationship. you got to sit in one chair. You know, our culture always wants things on the cheap. Many, many people want relationships on the cheap, right? That's why they move in together. Instead of making the sacred marriage vows, this is, I promise, all of me to all of you for all of my life. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can we get the benefits without paying the price? No, life doesn't work that way. The cost of commitment is required, and you can only have a relationship with Jesus on the base of complete commitment. So what are Jesus' terms? If you want a relationship with me, if you want to come after me, if you want a relationship, a love relationship with me, here's the terms. Number one, deny yourself. To deny someone means to disown them. It means to refuse to associate with them. Peter denied Jesus. What did he say? I don't know him. I've never hung out with him. I don't know who he is. He disowned Jesus. He denied Jesus. Here we're talking about denying yourself. It says to deny yourself means I don't want anything to do with that old self-centered person I used to be. I refuse to obey myself and I commit to obey Jesus. I no longer trust my good works for salvation. I only trust in Jesus. Jesus told the story of the publican, right? And the Pharisee, the Pharisee's praying, he says, Oh God, I thank you like I'm not like the rest of those people, right? Those sinners. And the publican, he doesn't trust his own good works at all. He falls on his face, he says what? God be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, the publican went to his home justified because he put no confidence in himself. The publican had disowned himself. He denied himself. He says, I don't want anything to do with that old man who's self-centered anymore. To deny yourself 
means to abandon your agenda, to abandon your plans, to abandon your ambitions, to even abandon your very life. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? By faith in the Son of God. So I have died to my old life. I've died to my old self. And my life today is Jesus Christ living in me. And you say, boy, that's pretty dramatic. Of course it is. Because you and I are servants of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, the Greek means doulos. And we say, well, a servant's not so bad. No, doulos means a bond slave. A slave of Christ. This is going to be hard for us Americans to hear. But a slave is one who has no rights because a slave doesn't even belong to themselves. They're owned by somebody else. 1 Corinthians 16.9. Paul's talking to the Corinthians. He says, you are not your own for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Followers of Jesus belong to Jesus because he has ransomed us. He has bought us back from the slave market of sin. We were enslaved to sin. Had no choice. And he paid the price to redeem us, to buy us back with his precious blood from the slave market of sin. And he played the price of our freedom all because of love. And we think, now I'm free to do what I want to do. No, you don't own yourself. You're bought by Jesus. The great news is, he's a much better master than you are. People say, I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to serve myself. I'm going, self is a lousy master. Self will abuse you. Self will take you places you don't want to go. Self will lead you into sin and death. Jesus Christ leads us into freedom and life because he, we belong to him. Jesus tells the story of the rich young ruler. You know, rich... Young ruler. What's there not to like about that? This guy seems to have it all, right? Rich and young and powerful. And he comes to Jesus, but he's got a problem. Matthew 19, 6, he says, Teacher, what good thing must I do that I may obtain eternal life? He knows he's got a problem, but he thinks he can do something. He thinks he can earn his way into heaven. And they have a little dialogue back and forth. Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. He goes, well, I've kept all the commandments. And you go, well, you got a little problem with lying. That's pretty obvious, right? <laughs> but Jesus very quickly identifies the idol in his life that prevents this man from following Jesus. And idols always prevent us from following Jesus. And he says, if you want to have eternal life, go and sell some of your stuff, all your possessions, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Verse 22 is so telling. When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. You cannot worship Jesus and worship stuff. You cannot serve God and money. No one can serve two masters, right? So this room ruler made a decision. He would not deny himself so we deny Jesus. It's interesting. He got to keep the money, 
But it said he went away sorrowful. You know how he went away sorrowful? He knew he made a bad decision. He got to keep the money, but he had to give up eternal life. Think that's a bad trade? Lousy trade. Jesus said, here's the cost benefit. Get now, he, Jesus doesn't tell everybody to get rid of all their stuff. That's not a universal prescription. For this guy it was because he worshiped his stuff. He has an idol in his life. His idol was preventing him from following Jesus. Jesus said, you got to get rid of the idol if you're going to follow me. Because you can't worship money and worship me. you got to make a decision. If you're going to follow me, it's all or nothing. The guy made a decision. I hang on to my stuff. I give up eternal life. And he went away sorrowful. Bad trade. Number two, take up your cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross. In our era, you know, we make ornaments of crosses. We make, there's big business in making crosses as memorabilia. In that era, the cross was only used for one thing. Execution. The cross was an instrument of prolonged torture, extreme humiliation, and ultimately death. You didn't even talk about crucifixion in polite company. It wasn't mentioned. It was so awful. It's been estimated the Romans crucified more than 30,000 people during Jesus' lifetime. Generally for insurrection, there was one historical incident where they crucified 2,000 people at once. Now, crucifixion is pretty expensive. It took four soldiers and a centurion to oversee it. Much easier to stone you, poison you, whatever. They could kill you lots of different ways. But crucifixion was the ultimate form of torture and suffering because Rome wanted it to be publicly known that you were under their thumb. People who were condemned to crucifixion were universally required to carry the cross beam, weighed about 125 pounds, themselves to the place of their own death after having been flogged within an inch of their life. And it was a public demonstration that everyone was subject to Roman rule. It's more than historically interesting. It's very sobering that every single one of the 12 disciples, with the exception of John and Judas, was martyred for their faith. Every single one. Peter was crucified upside down. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria with horses until his body fell apart. Luke was... Um, uh, executed uh, by decapitation, every single one. At that point, if Jesus said, pick up your cross, it meant you were headed for your death. Because the only people carried crosses were people that were condemned to die, that were enemies of the state. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to force a cross on you. It's a choice. He says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. And by the way, your cross is not your spouse. Just saying. Or bad health. Or some nasty person at work. Well, it's just a cross I have to bear. Maybe you're somebody's cross. I've heard you guys pray. Carrying a cross is a choice that we make every day. And it's a choice to die. 
When you carry the cross, it's a choice to die to self. It's a choice to die to self and to live for Christ. It is choosing every day to surrender your will that day to God. So when you wake up in the morning and you pray, Lord, I want your will today. I surrender my plans to you. I know I've got an agenda, but I've, like Brad says, I've left the top five open because you're going to add some things in. I will follow you today wherever you lead. That's dying to self. That's dying to your plans. And that's surrendering to Jesus Christ. So you're picking up the cross of death to self so that Jesus Christ can run your life that day. It is a daily dying to self. Sometimes it's hour by hour. When someone runs their mouth to me and I want to open my trap and let them have it, and I say, Lord, that's dying to self right there. It's literally sometimes word by word, right? So Jesus is saying, the gift of salvation, my gift, my life to you is so valuable that it's worth dying for. Physically, spiritually, emotionally. You know, the world hates the committed Christian. Because a committed Christian, a follower of Jesus, by their life and by their words, convict the world of their own sin. And people hate to feel guilty. So the solution is, instead of repent, it's just easier to persecute the messenger, right? Ridicule them, blow them off, or execute them. Now, most Christians in this culture will not be called to die for their faith, but many, many suffer persecution. Many suffer rejection. Many suffer shame. In many cultures, if you follow Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you will lose your family because they'll disown you. And you're going to have to move out and live someplace else. Jesus anticipated that in Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's not saying don't love father, mother, daughter, son. He says it's a matter of relative love. Who do you love more? We've said in this class before, never marry anyone who doesn't love Jesus more than they love you. If they love you more than Jesus, you have become their idol. And you ain't worth that much love anyway. You want to be married to someone who loves Jesus because they're the only ones who can teach them to put up with you. I'm serious. This is the only way they're going to be able to live with you is divine power. That's the only way we can love them the way they deserve to be loved. Divine power. So most of us are not going to be called to lay down our lives physically, although some will. Martyrdom is a great, great honor. All at once, you know, I'm going to be executed for my faith. But every single one of you are laying down your life. One hour at a time. You laid down the last 24 hours. Because I know you're here. And in the last 24 hours, you traded that 24 hours for something. Right? Every day you trade time for something. We trade time for money. We trade time for position, for pleasure, for power, for comfort, for food, for entertainment, and experience a relationship. But we're trading time every hour we live. We decide what we're going to do with the time. At the end of that day, that 24 hours is gone forever. All you got to show for it is what you traded for it. So what do you have to show for it? 
reason I ask that is I keep reading people on their deathbed that have a lot of regrets. I wished I would have done, I should have done, I can't believe 90 years has gone by so fast and what have I got to show for it? The reality is, only Jesus Christ and the gospel are the only things worth trading your life for. Because they're the only things that last forever. Everything else down here, dandelions in a hurricane. Man, it's going. Interesting question. If you took an inventory of your life to date, and you've swapped 50 years, 40 years, 60 years for something... What have you gotten that's of eternal value in exchange for all the scar tissue you picked up on this planet? Useful question. Even tougher question. This one really hammered me. What has it cost me to follow Jesus? If it hasn't cost me anything to follow Jesus, am I really carrying the cross? Wow. Deny yourself. Take me across daily and follow me. This implies continually following, day by day. Following wherever he leads, whenever he leads. Because a disciple is one who follows in the footsteps of the teacher. John MacArthur uses a pretty simple illustration to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He says, if you're going on a trip, first thing you do is you say goodbye. Second thing you do is you pick up your baggage. Third thing you do is leave your current residence, proceed on your journey. You want to follow Jesus? Say goodbye to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus wherever he goes. Wherever he goes. Luke 9, 57, someone says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds like a pretty unconditional commitment, right? Jesus tells him in, in Luke 9, 58, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you willing to follow Jesus into homelessness? Because he was homeless. Are we willing to follow Jesus into ridicule? Because he was ridiculed. How far outside our comfort zone are we willing to follow Jesus? Am I willing to follow Jesus down to Cottonwood? Or into prison? Or dealing with my relatives? Who I'd rather just, don't even say it, Brad. <laughs> the very next verse in Luke, Jesus commands someone else to follow. He says, you follow me. And the guy says this, I'll follow you, but wait till my dad dies and I inherit his state. Then I'll follow you. You know what the message is? Let me get the money and then I can follow you in style and not in poverty. Right? Because the money's more important than following you today. Another onlooker volunteer says, Jesus, I'll follow you, but let me say goodbye to those who are at home first. Which means, if my family gives me approval to follow you, then I'll follow you. But if my family doesn't like it, ain't going to happen because my family's opinion of me is more important than your opinion of me. Very conditional followers. And Jesus says, there is no room for conditional following in my life. Every week at the close of our services at Valley Baptist Church, we sing a song of invitation, Right? And often we sing the song, I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. And it goes on, verse 2, worldly pleasures all forsaken, 
And then the chorus, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. And we go, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I know the song. And most of us who are singing that song are committing perjury. We really don't mean all. We mean some. And some of the time. I surrender some when it won't cost me too much. I surrender some when I desperately need help, then I'll have a conversation with you, Lord. I surrender some when it's convenient. If we're really serious about following Jesus, we should ask Jesus to show us what we have not yet surrendered to him, and he will turn the spotlight on your life. What exactly do we need to surrender that is holding us back from following him wherever he goes? You know, when our son Caleb died from a sudden cardiac arrest at age 15, I found out that there were some things I had not yet surrendered. And I bet you got them too. So when I sing that song now, it's, Oh God, help me to surrender all. Because I know there are some areas I have not yet surrendered. And I know you want me to do that. And some of you in this room are struggling with following Jesus wherever he leads because he's leading some of you through some hard times. I know that. Some of you have illness, financial difficulties, family troubles, career changes, death. And he may be telling you to surrender something you don't want to surrender. Whatever you're hanging on to, surrender it to him because he'll take better care of it than you can. You say, Lord, if I surrender this to you, what are you going to do with it? He'll take better care of it than you can because he's God. And he loves you more than you love you. And he knows what's best. Even if it's a cross. Jesus gives us a paradox. He says, you want to save your life here on earth? You want to live for yourself on earth? You want to live for the things of this world? It guarantees that when you die, you lose it all. On the other hand, if you lay down your self-centered life here, if you lay it down for the sake of the gospel, it'll guarantee eternal life. And he asks the question in verse 36, what does it profit someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? I mean, if you could trade your soul in exchange for the entire world, it would be a foolish trade because this world's going to burn up and your soul lives forever somewhere, right? If you refuse Jesus here on earth, you're refusing him for all eternity because you're saying, I value the stuff of this life more than I do with eternity in heaven with Jesus. That's a really bad trade, right? In Luke 12, Jesus tells a story about who? The rich farmer. And he says this farmer's got really productive soil and his Crops are huge. I mean, he's got big surpluses. And he says, oh, I'm such a generous person, I'm going to give it all away. Is that what he says? No. He says, I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to store all the crops for me. Right? And his motives are revealed when he talks to himself. And you all talk to yourself, right? Sometimes you even answer back. <laughs> Those are the best conversations. Really? Yeah, you always agree with yourself. So he says in verse 19, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You know what he's saying? I don't need God. I got enough stuff to be okay without God. 
I got wealth, baby. I don't have to work anymore. I can hang out. I can retire. Great American dream. Live on the beach, right? Body surf, collect dead calcium shells. I'm going to have a seashell collection, man. I'm telling you. Drive my motor home for the next 20 years, right? Eat till I clog my arteries. What a great life. He says, I don't need God. I got my stuff. He'd gained everything that life could offer. And he says, I don't need a relationship with God. And verse 20, God brought him back to him and says, you fool. This night your soul is required of you. And now who will own all the stuff that you've prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself on earth and is not rich toward God. There's nothing wrong with wealth. Just make sure it's the right kind of wealth, spiritual, eternal, relational wealth toward God. He who dies with the most toys still dies and leaves it all to someone else and faces God the judge without heaven's defense attorney who's named Jesus Christ. You're going to need a defense attorney, right? Build a relationship with him today. God calls him a fool because nothing on earth can pay for your sins and keep you out of hell except the God-man Jesus Christ who invaded this planet to bring us heaven's life, eternal life. Nothing is more valuable to you than your soul because it's eternal. It lives forever somewhere. You know, heaven or hell, united with Christ or separated from Christ. Don't get fooled by the things of this world. So he's talking about the requirements to follow Jesus. The cost of discipleship is nothing less than everything. The benefits are nothing less than eternity with Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus wherever, whenever, and however he leads you. Choose one chair. Let's summarize. And then I'm going to ask Tom to come up and lead us in prayer and praise. First principle, the only way to be saved from the penalty of sin is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, and trust in his payment for our sin. The implication is don't trust in your goodness, trust in his goodness. Number two, arguing with God is agreeing with Satan. <sighs> yeah, that stuck me. Our job is not telling Jesus our plans, but adjusting our lives to his plans. And lastly, choosing to follow Jesus will cost you everything this world worships and gain you everything heaven worships. And it's the best trade in all of eternity. Because everything down here is going to burn up and everything in heaven lasts forever. Knowing Jesus is the priceless treasure. Now that you know, Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.